Coming up, Netflix blows up in a good way. The Boston Providence Hyperloop route blows up in a bad way, but thankfully not in a literal way. And will my voice make it through the show without cracking? It's Tuesday, the best day of the week. This is Steve Tushankel, and you're listening to the New England Tech Podcast. Tech Podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead Content Management Solutions for media organizations and content creators. You love to write, so why do you hate to publish? Visit us at hammerheadcms.com. Music in this show is by Kurt Baker, Lame Drivers, Monkey Mind, The Pharaohs, and The Barracudas. Anyone who's listened to this podcast before knows that I love all forms of technology. That's why I host the podcast, right? That's why the New England Tech Podcast exists, so I can talk about technology with all of you who are also interested in it. So I like all sorts of things, new innovations, old standards, but there is one form of technology that I have always consistently hated. And I don't use that word lightly, hate it. I really do hate it. And that is the inkjet printer, the humble inkjet printer. Now laser printers may be better as far as printers are concerned, but Most people don't own laser printers. They tend to be exclusively for businesses. They're prohibitively expensive. Inkjet printers are what everyone has, and I have never owned one, despite multiple attempts that I liked or even worked for an extended period of time. They are terrible. They mechanically don't work. Uh, The software is bad. There's just, there's no easy way to use them. I probably sound crazy here to a lot of people (laughs) out there, right? A lot of people are probably like, but I use a printer all the time. I have printers. There's no problem with them. Typically, when I want to print something, I go to a FedEx office or a library or something like that, and I print something out because typically I don't even have a functional printer. And it drives me crazy. I don't know why these printers can't be improved by their manufacturers. And I've tried cheap ones. I've tried more expensive ones. I've tried ones that have been discontinued. I've tried ones that are highly rated. And, you know, I take them out of the box and they don't work. Sometimes they, from the from the get-go, don't work. And I have to return them or do, you know, whatever. I'll tell you what happened to me recently. I have had a printer sitting there on my floor for months and months and months that I tried and it never worked. It, it has literally never functioned. So recently I had the chance to get somebody's used printer. They just wanted another printer, but I was told that this printer was was still perfectly functional. Now in this particular case, I uh, I needed new ink cartridges for it because the ink cartridges had expired. And everyone knows that the, the scam of printers, right, is the ink cartridges. The printer itself is cheap, but you have to keep getting these new ink cartridges that are uh, very, very pricey, to, uh, to say the least. All I wanted to do was black and white printing, but no, this printer told me that I had to purchase both the black and white cartridge and the more expensive color cartridge, which I didn't need or want, or the printer wouldn't work at all, which is terrible. That is that is just a terrible way to design a device, unless you're trying to scam 
the buyers, which you probably are. But in any event, I had to purchase. For first of all, I tried the old ink cartridges from the printer that never worked in the new printer. But even though the printers were manufactured by the same company, uh, the the one cartridges, the cartridges from the first printer didn't work in the second printer. Right? Go figure. That seems to me to be highly unnecessary. They're the same type of printer, different models, but same type. Why shouldn't the cartridges work? Uh, they were both HP, but. No, of course not, of course not. So I had to buy some new ink cartridges. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not the fault of the printer industry. I have to admit, I have to be fair here. Um, not really anybody's fault in the tech world, but the cartridges never arrived. The tracking application informed me that the cartridges had been delivered to my mailbox. They were not in my mailbox. I called uh, Amazon, which I bought them from. They called the U.S. Postal Service, uh, which reported they had been delivered, but they were going to open up an investigation. Uh, they said the investigation would take a few days. That was a couple weeks ago. I haven't heard anything. Uh, I've got to call the U.S. Postal Service to figure out what's going on there. But the bottom line is I still don't have a printer because of not only the inadequacy of standard issue printers, but the complex nature of even setting up a printer and getting all everything you need to operate a printer. Why can't printers be better? I know they can be better. I know it. But for whatever reason, they're not low standards. I think if anyone out there in podcast land is an entrepreneur looking to, you know, make a, a few billion dollars, I really think that there's something to be said for the idea of rethinking the printer entirely. Why can't do it from the ground up, you know? Last week I talked a little about a little bit about Chromebooks and and how much I love them. Um and I've heard that the way the Chromebook was designed was they just threw out everything that they knew about the personal computer, right? They they're like why do we have to deal with any of this baggage? Somebody out there do that with a printer. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll do it myself. Do it with a printer. Pretend printers don't exist. Pretend you're inventing a printer from the ground up. What would you do? How would you do it? You know what I would do? I wouldn't have ink cartridges. I'd, I'd have ink that could be squirted into wells, you know, like an old ink well, right? Why deal with these cartridges that have mechanical issues? Why isn't the ink cartridge in the printer at all times? Why isn't it an integral part of the printer instead of a removable part, right? and then you could just replace the ink. How about that? That seems like a pretty good idea. Nobody's thought of that before. I've been giving you that one for free. So bottom line, printers are a constant source of frustration for me. I have never had a good one. I probably never will have a good one until somebody comes up with something better. You guys been following the news lately? Yes, no, maybe? Well, that is why I am here to tell you exactly what has been happening in the world of technology. Ladies and gentlemen, let us see what is in the news. up today, Netflix has announced that its content costs are ballooning 
to around $8 billion. Currently, Netflix spends $6 billion a year for content. That's what they spent in 2017, which is a tremendous amount. That is an industry by far the the craziest amount in the industry that any company is is spending for for similar types of content. But Netflix has announced that next year, even though everyone was up in arms about how much they were spending this year, they are increasing it even further. They're going to eight billion dollars. That is a lot of content. Now, why is Netflix doing that? Well, Netflix would like to be your sole entertainment destination. They would like to dominate your personal entertainment world. Now, they announced oh, quite a while ago, a couple of years ago even, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that they intend for 50% of their content to be original. So when you load up your web browser or your smartphone app or your streaming media app uh, on a streaming media device such as the Roku or the, the Fire TV, uh, they want 50% of what you see to be Netflix originals that you cannot and probably will never be able to see anywhere else. That's the idea. Now, when Netflix originally announced this 50% goal, they didn't give a date for it. But this week, they did. They said that this $8 billion is going to be used to achieve that goal of 50% original content by the end of of 2018 and as part of this they are going to be uh, developing 30 original anime series I am personally not an anime fan myself but a lot of people love it you will have 30 new anime shows exclusively on Netflix to choose from by the end of next year they also have announced that they will be producing 80 original movies in 2018 80 movies and that's nuts. Now, you may think this is the New England Tech Podcast. What does this have to do with tech? I love Netflix and I love talking about Netflix because it really is, it really represents the evolution of tech and its influence in our world. It represents the fact that technology is inseparable from other things we do in life, including entertainment. Netflix is tech and entertainment perfectly melded together. Now, like a lot of tech companies, they have had to do, make a lot of improvements and reimagine their business model entirely in previous years. Now, when I first signed up for Netflix, and remember, Netflix, is, it, net is in the name. That's, that's the internet, right? They are a digitally native company. I was really fascinated by Netflix early on, and I'm sure many people will remember that they had a very different business model that, than they had now. It was a, uh, a DVD distribution model, right? So you would use the internet, which was crazy at the time, this was the 90s, to select DVDs that you wanted delivered. And when Netflix received a DVD from you, when you sent it back from them, they would automatically, without you doing anything, send, send out your next DVD or multiple DVDs, if that was your plan. And that was their business model for a long time. I kind of fell in love with them, with this business model. but. Ultimately, they decided that streaming was the way to go. DVDs were falling by the wayside. And they were absolutely right about that. And today, they still will send out DVDs if you have that plan, but it is a very, very small part of their business. Now, a lot of people over the years have not liked Netflix's changes in business plans. Understandably so, right? Every time Netflix changes business plans, there are a lot of customers that are alienated. 
I was one of these customers at one time. I'll tell you a little personal story about the DVD plan. So I first became um, a Netflix customer when they had that DVD plan and they didn't even have streaming. And then eventually they announced, oh, we're adding some streaming. If you subscribe to Netflix, you can sometimes stream content if you want. You can stream movies and TV shows. And I wasn't feeling that. Now, that may surprise you, right? Because I love new technology. This was a cool new technology, but I felt that it wasn't living up to its promise at all. For one thing, my expectation as a Netflix customer was that I would be able to watch pretty much within reason any film that had ever been produced. And I loved doing that. I loved getting not only new releases, but classic movies from decades ago, obscure documentaries, that sort of thing. I really enjoyed doing that on Netflix. Suddenly, they were transitioning to the streaming model and they were clearly pushing their, their users to the streaming model. And that content just wasn't there. Um, and it, it was becoming more and more expensive to do both, right? Clearly, they wanted you to just stream and forget the DVDs. But if you wanted the DVDs, that was becoming more and more expensive. I actually canceled Netflix years ago because of Ghostbusters 2. Now, when they were going with the DVD model exclusively, you could say, you could put that on your list online. You could say, I want Ghostbusters, and they'd send you Ghostbusters, right? Ghostbusters, such a good movie, so choice, such a great film. Bill Murray's performance, incredible. By the way, did you know that a lot of it was ad-libbed? It was. That's because Bill Murray is a comedy genius. So I wanted to watch Ghostbusters, and I wanted to stream it, right? So I looked up Ghostbusters, and I'd already noticed that a lot of the movies that I wanted weren't there. And I looked up Ghostbusters, and Netflix... Uh, its algorithm went to work. It said, well, we don't have Ghostbusters. You can't stream that. Maybe you'd want to watch Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2 is a terrible movie. It's got its entertainment value. It's bad. It's a bad movie. Vigo the Carpathian, very entertaining character. Janusz, hilarious. But all in all, not a good film. So that got me thinking, right? Netflix... What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you if you can't even show me Ghostbusters? Think about this. I can understand Netflix not having the new releases streaming, but Ghostbusters was released in 1984. What's the difference between Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2? They're both old movies. The only difference is that Ghostbusters is a movie that people like, and Ghostbusters 2 is a movie that people don't like. So what Netflix, I felt, was signaling to me was, yeah, we got streaming films, as long as they're bad movies that nobody likes. You can stream all the bad stuff that nobody likes, but good movies, new, old, whatever, we don't have them, we can't help you there. So I canceled. And it wasn't until years later when the proliferation of Netflix's original content just got too great that I re-upped because now Netflix was catering to me again. They had never been able to catch up to what I what appealed to me in their old business model, but now I was interested in the new Netflix. I was interested in watching this original content. Now, in the interim, something had happened. A lot of people had started watching classic television on Netflix. Breaking Bad, for example, became a big deal because of Netflix, right? It actually became a rating success on conventional television, on FX eventually, but initially didn't get very good ratings on uh, conventional cable.
not many people were watching it. It was only when the Netflix viewership picked up that people became interested in watching the new episodes that were first run on cable. So that's what had happened. A lot of people had become interested in that. I was never really interested in watching these older TV shows, binge watching, right? That was the birth of binge watching. But the original content did appeal to me. So what's happening now? Same thing that happened to me when I was a DVD customer. You have all these customers or these users who say, or these viewers, I should say, who say, well, I don't want your original content, Netflix. I want to watch old stuff like Breaking Bad, like Futurama, like like shows like that, you know, these bingeable shows. And Netflix isn't really accommodating them anymore for good reason, because the rights to those shows were becoming significantly more expensive. So it didn't make sense for them financially. They think original content that they can air forever and people keep watching it is the way to go. So that's a very long roundabout way of telling you that people have always been frustrated when Netflix changes business models. But has that really been a risk for Netflix? No, not at all. Netflix announced once again uh, this week that they beat earnings on Wall Street. Uh, So clearly, whatever they're doing is working, and people who don't like it are just going to have to grin and bear it. Next up, the Boston-Providence Hyperloop route has lost an important competition for business and engineering resources. Hyperloop One, a Los Angeles startup uh, involved in developing the Hyperloop, recently announced 10 finalists to receive that business engineering uh, funding and resources for additional Hyperloop development. And a proposed Hyperloop route from Boston to Providence was not among them. Now, what is the Hyperloop? Bear with me if you've heard this before. I love talking about the Hyperloop. It is a brand new form of transportation conceived by Elon Musk. We have major transportation issues in this country, particularly within cities. And Elon Musk, the tech entrepreneur, was sitting around and thinking, why has it been so long since anyone came up with an entirely new form of public transportation? And he conceived the Hyperloop, and then he open sourced it. He threw it out there. He said, I'm going to make some money on this, but I want everybody else, without paying me uh, you know, any, um, any royalties or anything like that, I want other people to have the ability to make money off it as well, and more importantly than make money, change the world, as tech people love to say. But I really do feel like this has the potential to change the world. Basically, it's a pneumatic tube the Hyperloop. I'm greatly oversimplifying it. I'm sure the people who work on this full time would think, but if you've ever seen those old systems in banks and post offices, when you put a tube with a piece of paper um, in it into a bigger tube and the, the compressed air would shoot that tube at high speeds to a completely different part of the building, that's what the Hyperloop is doing, except it's doing it with you. It's not doing it with paper, it's doing it with people. There are a lot of people out there who are working on the Hyperloop. It does not exist yet in a commercial, commercially or even necessarily technically viable form, though great advancements have been made and test runs have been done. Uh, but there are a lot of people out there who are working to make the Hyperloop a reality. I really believe in it. Providence to Boston was one route that was proposed as part of this big competition. But... 
that route unfortunately lost out. Now, Holly McNamara is the project leader for Hyperloop Massachusetts, which was the group that proposed this route. She told Boss Inno that the project, quote, is definitely not over. So they're going to keep at it. They believe that it was a lack of local government support that caused the, caused the route to lose to other Hyperloop routes. Um, one can imagine, though, that Boston to Providence would be a very useful route and or route. Do I say route or route? I've said both, right? I've said both in the segment. Either one. Who cares? But uh, Providence to Boston would be a 20-minute trip, or actually less than a 20-minute trip on the Hyperloop because the Hyperloop, theoretically, can reach speeds of about 670 miles per hour. Isn't that incredible? So imagine going from Boston to D.C., in, you know, mere like 45 minutes or something like that. Is my math right? I don't know. Do the math at home and then email me at stevenchenko.com. Tell me if that works. But uh, Providence to Boston, you'd think would be a useful route. A lot of people make that trip. It's not that long a drive. So I don't know if it necessarily has the utility of, say, a Los Angeles to a San Francisco route or route, if you prefer. Uh, but Anyone who's driven from Boston to Providence or vice versa during rush hour certainly knows that there are transportation issues that need to be solved there. So the route may not make as much sense as some of the other routes or routes, but it does make some degree of sense. I know, I know this is going to happen eventually. It may happen when you're long gone, but there will be a Boston to Providence and a Boston to DC and probably a Boston to Miami, Florida hyperloop route. It's only a matter of time. And I have a lot of faith that smart people are working on it right now. This may in fact happen sooner than you think, despite the setback for the Boston to Providence team this week. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about the role of technology in politics. Now, if politics turns you off, as it turns a lot of people off, you don't have to stop listening here. We're not going to cover any real political issues, real controversial issues. What we are going to talk about is the idea of the technology industry influencing politics in an increasing manner and the controversies that result, right? We're not, we won't necessarily talk about the specific controversies from a partisan perspective, but we will talk about the, the idea that controversies do naturally arise from that. Now, technology is big business today. It's been big business for a while, but it's increasingly big business. Big business has always tried to dominate politics. Money talks, and anybody who has a lot of money is going to try to use that money to influence things. You don't have to be a socialist or an anarchist to understand that business leads to political influence. Success in business leads to more political influence. Traditionally, however, the tech world hasn't really been too involved in this. Even when Microsoft was hugely booming in the 90s. They devoted a very small uh, amount of their resources to lobbying efforts in Washington, D.C. 
it just wasn't really what they wanted to focus on. I, I think this whole idea of changing the world through technology implies that you can do it yourself. You don't need to uh, kick around DC and, and try to influence things that way. You can do it yourself. That That's sort of the tech ethos. But that has changed a lot. It's changed in the past 20 years. It's particularly changed in the past 10 years. And I think the reason why that's happening is technology is coming to dominate our society and our lives more and more. And as that happens, these companies that create that technology naturally have to become more political or they're naturally driven to become more political, even if they don't have to. Uh, companies like Apple and Facebook and Google, they have grown so much in influence, not just in how they affect our daily lives, but how much they affect our government. In fact, last month, uh, The Guardian, which is a British newspaper, very uh, well-respected and influential newspaper, called Silicon Valley the new Wall Street in terms of political influence. They're saying that Silicon Valley is not only catching up to Wall Street, they're more important than Wall Street right now. Silicon Valley may be the biggest single player in U.S. politics in terms of having a corporate presence. And that's a big turnaround from the days when technology companies were reluctant to get involved in politics. Uh, in fact, just this week, the New York Times had a big report on the increasing influence of Amazon in the political arena. And they're, they're a company that's actually wanted to become more and more involved in politics for a long time. Uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, the CEO of Amazon, has purchased the Washington Post, so he's very in interested in getting his opinion out there. Um, Amazon's chief spokesman is actually Jay Carney, who was once the press secretary for President Barack Obama. So these companies are getting more and more involved, but what do they actually want? Well, what they want is unique and it's not unique. Ever since big business has become involved in politics, and it's been a long time since that has been the case to many people's consternation, they've all wanted the same thing, right? You've got businesses that people think contribute uh, great things to our society. You've got businesses that people are worried are taking advantage of workers and, and uh, participating in unethical business practices, but all those businesses, right? Good, bad, indifferent, all those businesses, they all want exactly the same thing. They want to further their interests and they want to benefit themselves. That's all they want. But exactly what they do want is what differs from the companies in the past. Yes, they want to benefit themselves, but unlike Wall Street, which trends conservative, the tech industry tends to be pretty liberal, but it's liberal with a twist. Now, they want to promote social justice, LGBTQ rights and such, but they also want the same thing that Wall Street has wanted and other big businesses have wanted, which is laws passed that allow them to operate however they want. They don't want to be regulated at all. They want to, they want to be trusted to do whatever they like whether or not that seems ethical or legal. It's what all businesses want and it's how they want to. A lot of people think that Silicon Valley is libertarian in that sense. 
in that they are kind of socially liberal, but economically, economically it can be pretty conservative. Actually, an interesting recent study at Stanford University has shown that that's not really true. Silicon Valley corporations actually don't mind paying taxes. Taxes are the most hated thing for any libertarian. Silicon Valley, they don't mind taxes. They think that it's okay for them to have to pay their fair share, but what they draw the line at is any regulation of how they can actually operate. Regulation is the key. So tech leaders have been getting more and more involved in politics as they've been trying to push this agenda. Peter Thiel, the eccentric tech billionaire, who is a true libertarian, is perhaps the most prominent recent example of tech people trying to inject themselves into politics, uh, but he's actually an exception in that he is a true libertarian. I think Mark Zuckerberg is probably a much better example of this. After founding Facebook, what do you move on to? Well, he clearly wants to be president of the United States, and he clearly saw Donald Trump coming from no political background and being able to become president in short order, and he wants to set up the same thing for himself. But just as Mark Zuckerberg has ramped up those efforts, Facebook has come under fire for being complicit in spreading fake news and accepting Russian money for targeted ads meant to influence our U.S. presidential election. So you can see how this increased involvement here is fraught with danger for these individuals and also these companies. As they become more and more involved in politics, the nasty things about politics are going to start to impact them. Political criticism of tech companies has ramped up greatly recently. You probably heard a lot of criticism out there of Facebook and Google and Amazon as being unethical in various ways. Uh, And that's the essential problem, isn't it? This combination of this outward egalitarianism by these companies, this image that they want to project, and maybe these values that many of the people involved really have. But these come into conflict with a desire to protect themselves and a desire to make the most amount of money, right? Does Mark Zuckerberg believe that Russian forces should be able to influence our election? No, he'd probably go out as a candidate and campaign against that idea. But at the same time, he strongly believes, probably more so than he believes anything else, that Facebook should be allowed to make the maximum amount of money. And these are the kinds of things that happen when any business becomes mature. When Google first started, their slogan was, don't be evil. That was the whole idea, right? Microsoft evil, Google not evil. Google was a force for good. Well, Google has done plenty of things since that they probably would have thought of as evil at the time. But when you become big enough, you start to want to do anything that benefits yourself, no matter what it is, and you want to influence politics as well to allow those things that you want to do to take place. There's not always a one-to-one relationship between the game that these companies talk and the game that uh, that uh, they're they're dedicated to uh, outwardly and what they're doing behind the scenes and what they're trying to do in the political arena. Good example of this is the status of women in the tech world. Uh, all these companies talk a big game about inclusion, about equality, and about how you know women are as, are as good as, as men and need to be involved as much as men are. But when push comes to shove, they don't involve women in that way. They operate in a much more traditional way where women are subject to, uh, 
to bias and and often pushed out. It's still very much a boys club in these places, even as the leaders are hiring vice presidents of diversity and talking about all the steps that they're taking. They can't tackle this culture that exists in there because at some at some level, the people who make up these companies don't really want to. So there's there's an essential conflict and it's only getting worse, both from that perspective and from a political perspective. I would expect in the coming years to see much, much more of companies talking one way and doing something else and hiring lobbyists and running coordinated campaigns in the media to support that something else, even if that something else is in conflict with their stated values. But hey, that's what politics is. That's always been what politics is. And if the tech world is going to get involved in politics, that's what they're going to have to deal with. And that's what they're going to have to explain away. this Harvey Weinstein stuff? You probably have, right? Well, in just in case you haven't, I'll just briefly tell you, Harvey Weinstein, the founder of Miramax, the founder of the Weinstein Company, a well-respected and very, very successful movie mogul who has produced many of the most financially successful films, one of the most profitable films of the past 20, 25 years. Uh, and certainly, most some of uh, some of the most critically respected films as well. Uh, he, he's probably respected for getting award nominations more than anything else. He has been accused of a long, 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 long history of sexual harassment and assault by a variety of female actors and other people that he has worked with uh, over the course of many, many years. It's it's really blown up, and everyone's been talking about it both in the entertainment industry and in our society in general. Well, Rose McGowan, um, the actress, was actually banned from Twitter this week for 12 hours while she was talking about this. She was tweeting repeatedly about people that she had encountered in the entertainment industry in Hollywood and how they're complicit in this behavior. Most prominently, she accused Ben Affleck of lying about his knowledge of Harvey Weinstein's behavior. So Twitter dropped the hammer and they said, Rose McGowan, you don't get to talk anymore on our platform. You're done. We're, we're pulling the plug on you for 12 hours. Outrage ensued. People talked about how Rose McGowan was being silenced for speaking out so strongly on this and in a not societally approved way. Twitter says she was banned because she violated their terms of service. For example, one tweet that she sent out included a private phone number, and Twitter does not allow that sort of doxing uh, of private individuals, revelation of their private information. But there are a lot of people out there who believe that she was simply being silenced for expressing a point of view. And then a lot of people's attention turned to Donald Trump. He's been saying controversial things on Twitter for years now, got him elected president, but he has never been punished in any way by Twitter. He's never been suspended or anything like that, even though some of his tweets may have violated Twitter's terms of service. So Rose McGowan says, well, you, here's here's a private phone number. And Twitter says, that's not allowed. We're banning you. Donald Trump uh, recently uh, 
advocated for nuclear war, <laughs> which some observers thought was uh, a little bit uh, maybe too far. In uh, that's an understatement. That's the understatement of the year, right? But certainly in violation of Twitter's uh, terms of service in terms of advocating for violence. Um, but he doesn't get banned. So why does Rose McGowan get banned? Donald Trump doesn't get banned. Well, that's a very, very good question. Free speech and technology are a uh, a, a pair with a complex relationship. Since the 90s, really, right? Since people started, first started talking to themselves, uh, talk to, talking to themselves, Freudian slip, since people first started talking to each other on a large scale uh, on the internet, things have been fraught with difficulty and fraught with controversy. It is a very, very delicate balance. And we are going to be exploring that balance in much more depth next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Steve Tushankel. Courage.